I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Samuel Gibert of Mastadama Gasak on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Bonjour. I am very well. Thank you for having me. Very nice to see you. Well, likewise. Your dad had an interest in gardening, and he purchased a farm in nineteen early 1970s. So my dad, after meeting my mother in the mid-60s, decided to, well, they decided to start a, have a family, and I came first. And at the time I came, they found this old farm, which was totally run down. It wasn't a vineyard. It was nothing but a vineyard. It was a rundown farm that the previous owner were happily giving away or selling away to retire in the local village. There were vines there already or no? About two acres was made of vineyard and not red wine, actually, white wine made of claret. It was almost out of production. The vineyard was very, very run down. Two acres was not a lot, but it allowed the, the previous owner to have their own wine for their own consumption. So the name of the estate, obviously, is Mass, which means farmhouse. Domas, uh, which was the name of the previous owner or the farmers for nine generations. And then Gassac, which comes from the name of the river that flows in the middle of the valley where the Mastoma Gassac estate is. And why do you think that your father and mother decided on that particular spot? So my mother was uh, based in Montpellier, which is the nearest town on the, on the Mediterranean coast. If you draw a straight line between Italy and Spain, it's right in the middle on the coast. And my father had a leather factory further north, uh, a town called Millau. Now it's famous for its aqueduct. They wanted to live in the countryside, and that was about spot in the middle. And they just fell in love. They looked at a lot of places. They found this beautiful old farmhouse lost in the middle of the forest. Vineyard now they itself is, if we're talking in acres, it's about 150 acres, but the forest around it is about 8,000 acres of forest. So it's a, it's a small vineyard lost in the middle of a big forest called the Garrigue. How did it become a vineyard? Like what happened that it got, I, obviously you said that there was some claret there, but what happened that it was expanded in more vines? So initially, uh, Aimé and Véronique, my parents renovated the house. And then once that was done, they thought, okay, we have land around it. Let's not waste it and let's plant something. But back then in the 70s, Languedoc uh, and wine were not the, the best combination. You know, the people might describe the wine coming out of a region back then as poor quality. That's to be nice. And the English have a term that's it's plonk. Um, you know, vineyard was not the first idea you had if you were starting a, a farm. And so my dad had this idea they would plant asparagus, olive tree, grains, melons. That, those were the kind of profitable uh, farming uh, uh, at the time. But he had a good friend, the professor Henri Angelbert, and that professor was the dean of the University of Geography in Bordeaux. So obviously when you're a geograph in Bordeaux, you know quite a bit about soil, or terroir as we call it, and that friend, Henri-Ange Albert, came one day to spend a couple of days with Adomagasac, which at the time, again, was a rundown farm. And my dad asked him if he could have a look at the soil. And to cut a long story short, after spending a couple of days looking at the soil of the valley, Henri-Ange Albert came back quite excited one night and said, you know, 
I think I have found in this valley a terroir that I've never seen anywhere else. If I had to compare, I would say Côte d'Or is a similar soil, so Côte d'Or in Burgundy. And it quickly added, I believe you have a terroir where you can make a Grand Cru wine. He also quickly added, it might take you 200 years to get there. But if you're purely talking about soil, uh, the quality of your soil, you have a Grand Cru soil potential. And it's a red soil? It's a red glacial soil. Uh, when 90% of, uh, of what surrounds us is white limestone, it's in that valley there is a pocket of glacial soil that seemed to have been deposited and trapped there millions and millions of years ago, made of small, small fragments and red powdery soil. The, its main quality is that it's extremely free drain, it's extremely poor in organic nutrients, but it's extremely rich in minerals. What's the subsoil? There's a lot of clay and, li- and limestone. Key characteristic of that valley, it's its cool microclimate. Languedoc region where we are is hot, well, warm, I was going to say, but hot. It can be super hot in summer, uh, reaching 100 degrees Fahrenheit. In our little Gessac Valley, we have a much cooler microclimate where the temperature drops down to the 50s, sometimes the 40s, even in the middle of summer. And that is a lifesaver for our vineyard because the vineyard, it means that the vineyard gets to cool down during the night. It gets hot during the day where it's ripened. But during the night, the vineyards cool down and cooling down means the ripening period is lengthened. So instead of Cabernet Sauvignon ripening over two months, it's over three months. And only and specifically because of that cooling effect. Um, we call it effet de Piedmont. So basically that cool air that is found in the Gassac Valley at night is a consequence of the breeze coming from the Mediterranean Sea and the cool air coming down from the mountain of the Massif Central, the center mountain of France, and joining exactly in the middle. And exactly in the middle, it's the Gassac Valley. So it's the cool air, because it's a narrow valley, gets trapped in that valley just for a few hours. But you know, as a kid, I remember partying when my parents were away, we have a a pool by the river and it's midnight and you're on your t-shirt and short and super warm and suddenly one o'clock and this it's like opening the door of a fridge there is a cool air just coming down at you if you're not wearing a sweater you are suddenly feeling really cold and every year it shows up and every year it's there the fact that we've preserved all the forest around obviously helps with that cool microclimate but that's that and the soil are the two blessings of the Gasak Valley. One of the things that was interesting about your dad is he tracked down cuttings all through Europe. So initially, uh, and, I, and I say both my mom and dad, because it was really both of them. People talk about my dad because he was a front person be- behind every uh, uh, great man that is even greater woman. And uh, she was there all along. And we started with Cabernet Sauvignon. The cutting came from a, a very ancient nursery, which was nursing, cutting from Aubryon Vignard, Chateau Aubryon Vignard, from the pre-First World War, so 19th century cuttings, that they sold to my parents as the nursery was about to close. They sold or gave to my parents what is today are the Cabernet Sauvignon of Master Domagasac. And then when my parents decided to add to the blend, not just be a Cabernet Sauvignon and also plant some white grape varieties, they started traveling probably most of the 70s, 80s. They spent all their free time traveling through France, Burgundy, Loire Valley, but also the lesser region, maybe the Jurançon region, the Jura, and so on. And then the rest of Europe, Italy, Greece, Israel, Lebanon, Switzerland. And each time they'll meet an amazing vine grower or winemaker, usually it's both, and enjoy his wine, they will get the cutting from the local grape varieties. So we have some Cercial from Adera. We have some Nerlescol from uh, Israel. We have some Petit Arvin from uh, Switzerland. We have some Nebbiolo Dolcetto Barbera from Italy, Tempranillo from Spain, Pinot Noir from Burgundy, and so on. If you combine both white and red grape varieties, we are close to 40, so 40 grape varieties, organically farmed, planted and farmed since the 70s at the Domagasac estate. Because it's interesting timing-wise, because that's really the era of the nursery clone. And your dad did the opposite. It was at the time of what we call extensive agriculture, and where everyone was searching for ways to produce more and be more disease-resistant and so on. And one of the answers that was found, at least for vineyard, was to clone vineyard. How do you reproduce a vineyard? In, in the old way, it's called selection massale. While you are going and pruning the vineyard during the winter, you have identified the strongest plant and you're keeping the cuttings from those 
and all those cuttings are going to be graft and then reproduce. Well, someone decided that they could do better, and instead of cutting a, a piece of the vineyard, they just take a cell and multiply that cell in a million or, uh, or more or less. And the idea behind it, that is a clone plant will be stronger against disease, which might be true, it's debatable, but what people realized once they had planted the clone, so 10 years, 20 years later, it takes about five years to seven years for a vine to, from the time it's planted to produce grapes. So 10 to 20 years later, people start to realize that clone had one big downside. It was overproducing. Instead of having the three bunch of grapes per plant, suddenly you had six or seven. The, one of the solutions that was found is called green harvest, where you go in July, two months before harvest, and you drop a few grapes. But you know, it's never ideal. If you have been training to run a marathon, you're not going to uh, just run half a marathon. So my dad was visionary in the sense that he refused the use of clone and everywhere he went, he made sure that he got cuttings from original vineyards with their true identity rather than being one cell multiplied by a thousand. It's each plant has its own identity. You know, it's like a concert. You can go to a beautiful opera concert. If you have a thousand of the same instrument, it might sound a bit the same. But if, imagine if you have a thousand different instruments. It's a completely different ballpark. I mean, he did that to what might be considered an extreme. Most people don't yes. have that many grape varieties in the mix. He got, you could say he got carried away, and even his son, myself and my brother, would say that. Do we regret it? Absolutely not. Um, I am the winemaker, and I've been for now 16 years at Domagasac. And when I get to work with 18 grape varieties in the red, it's like, I don't know if you cook, but when you're in your kitchen... Let's say you do a simple dish of rice. That's pretty simple. Most of the time, you're going to add at least one or two, maybe three or four, five things to make the rice taste better. Maybe a bit of truffle oil on top of it. Maybe some cumin, maybe some ginger, whatever. But you are using all those ingredients to bring flavors to the dish. Look at it this way. I, as a winemaker in my cellar, I'm like you as a chef in your kitchen. I like having all those ingredients because each of these ingredients is bringing a specific flavor, a new layer. So if you're having a wine, obviously the wine has to be well-made, but if the wine has 15 or 16 grape varieties, that might say that the wine is bringing you 16 or 17 different layers of flavors and savors. What's really interesting about that to me is also that it's a region without a strong wine tradition, and that actually allows for more freedom in the sense that he could plant a lot of different things because there wasn't a strict tradition and kind of AOC hierarchy that said, this is what you plant here. So it's kind of like a new world idea in an old world place. I'm going to agree with you with a little twist. It's a region which has a very ancient and old wine tradition, which went from high quality wine in the 19th century to high volume produced wine when the railroad appeared in Europe. When the railroad appeared in Europe, there was a huge opportunity for the largest vineyard of the world, which is Languedoc, to start producing more mass-produced wine in order to feed the rest of the world with their wine. Because remember, France used to export mostly its fine wine from Burgundy, Bordeaux, let's include the, the Rhone Valley. But when it came to cheap wine or everyday wine, where did it come from? Languedoc. The Languedoc focused for the most part of between the First World War and the Second World War, that's when the railroad kind of really developed through Europe and it made it easy to ship those big containers of wine through, through Europe, and people made fortune. What happened then is in the 60s, when new world country, but also Italy and Spain started to export, the Languedoc faced itself as not so equipped to match this competition because the entire production of, of Languedoc wine was based on CAF Co-op. And CAF Corp is an amazing tool where it's a big house in the middle of the village where every single person who owns vineyard in the village bring their fruit. But quite often, they didn't have quality in their DNA. They had, you know, make wine quantity, but quality was not, and market comprehension was certainly not there, their forte. So that has been a dying breed. And uh, if you look at the number of CAF Corp between 20 years ago to now, it's divided by, I think, by eight or by ninth. Uh, a lot of them have disappeared or, or regrouped with others and, and actually become quite strong now. But yes, the Languedoc has an historical tradition where you're absolutely right is the fact that we call the Languedoc the new world, region of the old world, because it's not, and I'm going to use that word very lightly, plagued by too much 
tradition. Tradition can be amazing, but it can also tie you up if you have too many rules on what to plant, where to plant, when to plant, how many to density. When we started, all around us was an ocean of vineyard that was going, actually was going bust. The European community was starting to give away money uh, to vine growers to pull out their vine. So if you own an acre of vine, you were giving $10,000 as long as you pulled it out because they thought that would be a way to get rid of the overproduction. There was one appellation, Pic Poule de Pinet, that is one of the oldest, and a couple of others, Saint-Chignan and La Livinière, that existed but didn't really emerge. The rest, it was just table wine. And actually, when Mas Magasac made its first vintage, we were a table wine for the next three or four years. Then we were elevated to Vin de Pays, country wine. It's now EGP. Uh, the rule changed regularly. Don't ask me why. But that's what we can put on the label, and that's what we put. Uh, there's a wine called Sassicaia. Sassicaia, before becoming the famous Bulgaria uh, DOC, was a vino de tavola. So they were free to do whatever they want as long as you know they did good. And in fact, they did so good that they were elevated to superstar uh, of Tuscany and had uh, their own appellation. Well, the difference with us is that we were elevated to superstar of Languedoc, but no one ever gave us our own appellation. Something that people say about Sassicaia is that Giacomo Takis was really taking a lot of the ideas of Emile Peinot and translating them into Tuscany. And Emile Peinot is somebody that also plays a role in the founding of your properties, wine. Indeed. A few years after the professor Henri Angalbert discovered the soil, came the first harvest, or a few months before the first harvest. And my parents had realized by then that while they had a beautiful vineyard growing, they had no clue how to make wine. You know, they drank wine, but that didn't make them a, a winemaker. And so the friend Henri Angelbert said, you know, if you are attempting to make this Grand Cru wine we talk about, um, and I've warned you, it could take 200 years to get there, there is one guy you want to talk about, and he's Professor Emile Penot. And Professor Emile Penot, in the 60s, 70s, was the top of his fame, written many books, amazing books about how to make wine, but also he was under contract with the Latour, the Lafitte, the Mouton Rothschild, the Cheval Blanc of this world. So he was quite busy with the best of the best. And that was pre-Michel Roland or Parker, so there was no uh, non one style. He was the one who defined a style of Bordeaux. And he in initially ignored the, the letters that my parents sent, asking him to teach uh, them. And then out of uh, a succession of lucky events, he accepted first to welcome them in Bordeaux for a week so he, they could follow him and during his visit to all the chateau. And my father, you know, still talked about uh, the visit at the Chateau La Lagune and so on with amazing eyes. Because again, we're talking about a, a different era for Bordeaux. I know Bordeaux, I've lost a bit of the trend the last 20 years and I share that. But I tell you what, when I was introduced to Bordeaux, it was Bordeaux of the pre-80s and or the 60s, 70s, 80s, still owned by family, not by bank or insurance. And still with a sense of winemaking that is the same that one can find now in Burgundy or in Rome. So really a fascinating uh, terroir. It's more a land of money now, not for everyone, but the border we hear about or we dream about, if we dream about it, is more a lot about money, so less accessible. And so Emile Penot accepted to help my parents, and in fact, he vinified at Domagasac the first two vintage, 78, 79, with my father on his, at his side. And as of 1980, he um, remained the advisory winemaker, but under two conditions, the two conditions is specified. Don't ask me to come more than twice a year, but you can call me after 9 p.m. any day of the year, and we will never talk about money. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when you look at the late 70s, there's not a lot of momentum in the French wine industry. You know, it's kind of an in-between time for Bordeaux. It's kind of an in-between time for Burgundy. It's not an era that's really associated with a lot of great champagne vintages. So I could see how it might be interesting for someone like Emile Peinot to come down to the Languedoc because... It was sort of probably one of the more exciting things happening in France at the time. Yeah, I can't talk for him, but it's for sure. I mean, if I, like, what you're saying is I'm kind of racking my brain. I'm thinking there's probably two estates that are actually very good friends and not far from each other, Domaine de Trévalon and Masdo Magasac, which both kind of emerged in among that downtime, as you call it. And it was a downtime. There was not yet the emergence of the superstar as we know them or the, the trendy region as we have seen more recently. So yeah, I, I think you're correct. It was, uh, it was a, a time of where not so much was happening. And certainly this was happening in the South and it, it got a lot of people very excited. 
because it was a really interesting time for Italy. Like the 78 vintage is a really interesting vintage for Barolo. And your dad traveled to Milan a lot yep. in terms of the fashion world. And sometimes when I taste the red of your father, it reminds me of kind of a tannin management that I associate with some Northern Italian wines. My father, who was initially more of a Bordeaux, and again, the Bordeaux old school drinker, had a real passion for Italian wine. Uh, that was probably what would be his most, his second favorite wine at the table, especially from Northern Italy. So he seemed like a pretty driven guy. I mean, what was he like as a dad? He was fun to be around and he was, you know, he was traveling a lot uh, for business. He was driven by his passion. He was spending hours and hours at the office. We didn't see it as the office because the office was just, at first he was in the, in the family house and then he was just down the path in, at the cellar. And the cellar for a kid is like Disneyland in a farm. You know, it's, hey, there's a tractor. Hey, there's a press. Yeah, how cool is that? So to me, it, 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 it was, you know, he was, was a great dad. He was maybe quite emerged in his, in his work so we don't see him all the time. But at the same time, we were allowed to take part in the harvest. So that's a fun time where we've, since 78, done every single harvest with, by hand only. And not with, you know, some people get uh, a group maybe here, it's more Mexican. In France, quite often it was Spanish and North African. We only employ, we don't refuse anyone, we only employ friends, people who've come back for a number of times, students. The last year, for example, we had 17 different nationalities. We had a Canadian, we had an American, we had an, three Irish, English, Japanese. And you get those 40 people from 17 countries barely speaking altogether English, playing music at night, Drinking wine, of course, but also working hard. As a kid, even as an adult, is great. But as a kid, it was it was again uh, Wonderland uh, uh, at Domagasac. So I, my father was feeling of that. You know, wine is not just the work in the vineyard and the work in the cellar. It's energy we put in it. It's a communion. It's a hard work communion, but it's a communion and an energy that people feed off the vine and off the land, but also goes into the wine. It's a long harvest, right? Because with all those grape varieties. The first picking is the Cabernet Sauvignon for the sparkling rosé, and that starts at 11 personal calls, so let's say late August, 1st of September. Then you have at least half a week to a week for that. Then another week for the white. Then two to three weeks for the red. You've got a full month with breaks in between, but it's a full month of 40 people plus people in the cellar, 70 people living in, uh, around or in a vineyard. Yes, it's, it's intense. And that's an energy that I want to share with the rest of the world or people who just like wine or, or like Domagasac or people who don't know Domagasac. And I, I just want to explain what's, what's going on uh, behind the scene or behind the vine uh, in the Gasac Valley. I mean, it seems like the rest of the world caught on pretty quick. In terms of quick recognition for a wine property, that's one of the signature like Harvard Business School kind of case studies of how it could happen. You're correct. In within the first vintage was 78, within three years, we were called the Chateau Lafitte of the Languedoc, the Petrus of the Midi, the Grand Cru of the South, things like that. And it continued. And the fact that there was, as you said, maybe little happening at the time in France in terms of wine industry and backed up by the fact that there was definitely nothing else happening in Languedoc meant that anyone who wanted to write something exciting, like a new story, was coming to us. Usually people get that for six months, one year. We felt like that for 10 to 15 years. And, and not just journalists. But wine importers from, at the time, great country like USA, but small one like Greece or New Zealand will come and say, hey, we want you on our list. What are you doing? Can you explain? And the whole world of wine came to Master Domagasac, uh, from the Genesis Robinson to the Oz Clark of this world to the importer, distributor, sommeliers. It was quite fascinating. I was younger then and I don't remember as clearly, but I definitely remember a number of those very famous people sitting at the kitchen table and then sharing a glass of wine with my parents, yes. It's clear that the potential was there and that it was recognized, but the part that I don't quite grasp because I never met him is what the motivations of your father were, because it does seem like a lot of work and quite the endeavor. And so I'm not quite sure what drove him to take it to the level that he did. I believe, so my dad, when he started the Masto Magasac adventure with my mom, as I call it, was still involved as the head of a very successful leather business in Millau. So he had the means to live with a hobby on the side, and the hobby was a vine. 
And let's say we produce about 2,000 cases in 78, 79, 80. Those cases sold more or less to all our friends and a few importers. And then recognition comes. But not just once, but twice, three times, four times. And then the world of wine comes to our door. And my dad was definitely an entrepreneur when he saw an opportunity to do something great. But not just from a business point of view. He was an artisan. Artisan with the word art. He wanted to craft something that was beautiful, well-made. And while he had inherited from the leather business, this was a chance for him to make a life out of his real hobby, his real passion, more than hobby, his passion, working in agriculture. My dad loved that idea. And I think then he said, well, I have five boys and I want to keep the lifestyle I have. So maybe he grew it as part of that. But never, I never sensed it was the search for, you know, to make a quick buck or to be able to say, okay, in 10 years' time, the business plan is to turn over the vineyard and sell it to someone else. In fact, a few years later, a couple of companies tried to purchase the Magasac and we say no. So I think his, his real motivation was that he had a, a raw gem in his hand and he wanted to cut it to make it shine to the, the rest of the world. And preserve, you know, with my mother to preserve the environment. They never, ever used chemical, even back at the time in the 70s when no one cared if you're organic. I don't think the word organic existed, but they didn't do it for the label. They just did it because first we were living on the estate, so we wanted to preserve our environment, but also because it was what they believed in. They were not, you know, hippies or anything like that. They just they just believed in a plant is alive and we wanted to keep it that way. And the soil is around, alive, we wanted to keep it that way. Were there specific takeaways from the leather and the tanning business that played into the estate on the wine side? I mean, were there things that he shared with you that he said, you know, this is what I'm thinking? Um, Non-clone vineyard, that was a big part. Because same thing happened with in the leather. My father used to buy skin from North Africa and he would go to select flock of cow that will produce the best skin and there could be a different quality of skin and he saw that the old traditional way of selecting the strongest cow to reproduce used to produce the best skin and then he started to see some genetically modify and then the skin was not as good so that's one of the things that ticked him early on to refuse cloning in agriculture and then the marketing is selling all over the world If I look at the Languedoc, I would say that one of the beauty of it and one of the downside of the Languedoc wine region is that it's full of amazing vintners, winemakers, that are devoted to make the most amazing wines, but have maybe very little either experience or comprehension of the business side, and they are quite happy to be successful within their region, but maybe they don't see the need to start preaching for their own brand outside. You know, I make a okay living outdoors and I have a horse or not, uh, and the kids are running around. At some point, you know, I have 3,000 cases that sells quite well within the region, maybe Paris, maybe a couple of pallets go to London and Brussels. At some point, it's an investment to say, I'm going to take a week of my time, whether it is time devoted to pruning or to playing with the kids, and travel, take the plane to New York and invest money and time to sell a wine that is already sold anyway. My dad saw that as an investment in the future. And he made Mastodon Magasac a worldwide brand, not just based on the media, but because him and, and my mom spend their life traveling and, and doing tasting and meeting and doing what we're doing today in France at first and then, and then around the world. So uh, there was a lot of that marketing inherited from the leather business. When did Mitterrand tank the French franc? Like in the early 80s, right? Yes, in the early 80s. So, I mean, it makes sense because originally you guys sold like 90% of the wine at export, right? Yeah. So the British guys were probably like, this is awesome. This is this great deal because you're selling it for what you think is a fair price. And for them, it's like nothing. No, absolutely. It was still at a time where wine price hadn't reached, you know, what, what it has reached today. But yeah, I mean, the... There's a combination from a selling marketing point of view. I was too young in the 80s to remember what made an impact, but also the trade in France, it took them a long, long time to accept that there was not even a, a Grand Cru wine, but a wine of worth their time coming from Languedoc. And one of the reasons 90% outside what we sold to private client went to export is because the export had no problem to say, wow, look at this wine. It's a Bordeaux-style uh, wine in a Burgundy bottle. Yet it's got no appellation, but 
it's worth every penny and it probably could reach a lot more. We take it. In France, it's first, it's not an AOC wine. It's a table wine or event pays. Not even tasting it, but can't be good. That has changed completely. Nowadays, you know, we have a distribution, I think in 80% of last count, 85% of the Michelin restaurant in France have at least a bottle of Domagasac on their list. So it has changed dramatically. But the first 20 years was bloody hard, excuse my French, um, to list a wine from a region who had bad reputation in a restaurant or wine shop of France. So 78, it was mostly cab with a touch of Tanat. 78 was 98, 99% of Cabernet Sauvignon and a couple of percent of Tanat, yes. And then it evolved in uh, something more like today, if you had to dress a picture of Domagasac Red, imagine 70 to 75% Cabernet Sauvignon, 45 years old Cabernet Sauvignon, and then an array of 15 other grape varieties, all estate grown, all organically farmed, we don't purchase a single fruit, and I'll quote a few, Cabernet Franc, Malbec, Merlot, Pinot Noir, Nebbiolo, Dolcetto, Tempranillo, Petit Verdot, Syrah, Condorni, Barbera. That's for the red. There are a few others for the white as well. So are those co-plantations, or are they in parcels? Every single grape variety has, has got its own parcel. There's about 77 plots of vine in the middle of the forest. So you have to imagine 77 clearing in the middle of the forest where you'll go to one, it's Pinot Noir, the next one is Nebbiolo, the third one is Cabernet Franc, and that way we can pick exactly according to ripeness. And what's the style of the planting? Is it on trellises or? It's on trellises. The local planting is typically quite low to the ground and without trellises, as I don't know how you call it, it's free planting. It's all on trellises and it's uh, it's higher to the ground that, uh, that you commonly found in, in the region. And we also try to avoid leaf plucking or leaf canopy managing. We want to leave as much leaf as possible for two reasons. The sun. Sun can have a burning effect. A leaf is like an umbrella. So if over the grapes you have a couple of leaves, the sun won't burn. The other reason is, so what brings the flavor to the stroop? Photosynthesis. And how does photosynthesis happen? With canopy. It's leaves, it's a, the green on the tree, the leaves of the tree that create the photosynthesis and help feeding the plant. It's the same with the, the vineyard. So the more leaf you keep, the more canopy you keep of a, a vineyard before harvest, the more feeding you have, natural feeding you have for your fruit. What's the typical bunch look like? I mean, obviously you're working with a lot of different grape varieties, but do the bunches tend to be uniform or do you tend to see a lot of berry size variation? We don't see a lot of berry size variation unless there is a drought effect. In that case, you can see very small berries that almost feel like it stopped growing at, on a certain day and it didn't go back to growing. We tend to have a gas sac, and I think that's more a result of the non-cloned vineyard, very tiny berries with very thick skin. So the ratio juice to skin is almost 50-50, as opposed to usually 80% juice and 20% uh, skin. Now, one could argue that it's not that great for production, but in terms of quality, it's amazing because what is juice? Juice is sugar and water. The good stuff, as I call it, is in the skin. So the more skin you have, the more extraction. And good stuff is anthocyan, the color, the tannin, the acidity. It's all in the skin. If you want flavors and savors, it's not, if, it's not going to be just in the juice. I mean, if you put a berry of Cabernet Sauvignon before the harvest in your mouth, it tastes like sweet water with a bit of flavor, but more or less. If you chew the skin, that's where you get all the good stuff. But you probably see a big difference between Pinot and Nebbiolo and that kind of oh, regard, from one, right? from one grape variety to another. Yes, they all have their own characteristic, for sure. And what seems to work or not work? Like, have there been times that you've said, I don't know, we got to pull this Aragon out? Or The Syrah, we had to pull it out, and we haven't replanted any. We don't have any Grenache or Carignan. Or any of the traditional suspects from the South are not planted Gassac. Uh, not by desire, just because they don't do well in our terroir. For some, we had to move it. We moved the, the Chenin Blanc. We moved from one vineyard to another, better location, after learning, you know, what, what it requires in our area. So it's, um, yeah, there's a bit of, of learning as we go, uh, since we are the first one, and since it takes at least seven years for the vine to be in full shape. Having said that, when it's just a matter of vintage characteristic, and I mean... There's been time where Petit Verdot doesn't ripen 
as well as it should. In that case, we have the perfect solution, which is our sparkling rosé. Our sparkling rosé is the young vineyard. So anything that is below 15 years of age goes in the sparkling rosé because it's usually the most pungent, fruity wine, but lacking a bit of complexity. And we rather have that in, a, in the, in the rosé. If we have any vine or vineyard that doesn't grade five out of five, maybe grade three or four, based on ripeness or too much or not enough, it goes in the sparkling rosé. The sparkling rosé does very well with that. Obviously, if it's damaged or rotten, not. But we in the South, we don't get rot. I mean, we get over-ripeness, but we don't get rot. So that's once in a million uh, time. Now, I know you're not the vineyard manager. I know you're the winemaker. And I know that you do co-ferments on a lot of those grape varieties. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the vineyard, I talk to very few people who grow Pinot, Cab, Nebbiolo, and many other things. And so what do you see as the differences there? And what works, what doesn't work, and what's interesting about those differences? So I'm lucky that the vineyard manager is my brother, Gael. <laughs> In order to work well as a family, we made sure that we all had a distinctive role where if one needs to have the last word, when it comes to Seda, it's me. When it comes to Vignard, it's him. Pinot Noir, we know that it's most of the time when we harvest it, it's overripe. But those characteristics are what we want in the Gassac. So it's fine. If I was, were to make a straight Pinot Noir from Domagasac Vignard, I would run it in a very different way. I would have to pick three weeks earlier and change completely our approach. What we do with a lot of our grapes is it's a combination. You might have a Nebbiolo that you pick at 12%, but a Merlot that you pick at 49 or 15%. I would never want to have a straight wine at 15% of Merlot. But once the Merlot is blended with everything else, it's going to end up at 13 and 13 In the meantime, the Merlot is bringing a lot of its structure, a lot of its richness when maybe the Italian grape varieties are going to bring more of their acidity, their backbone. So each grape bring a little thing that might be emphasis. And then you have the Cabernet Sauvignon that is there not to dominate them all, but to blend them all and to create a blend that is uniform. It's interesting to me tasting through the wines because when I taste some of the red vintages, the illusion that comes to mind in some sense is Andre Chelichev era California when they were working with cab, but they were also working with a lot of mixed black grape varieties in the vineyard. Sometimes they didn't even know what those grape varieties were. And it's kind of a similar thing in mm-hmm. a way because it's mostly cab with some mixed blacks, which is kind of what you do in yeah. a way. There are certain vintages that really read that way, even more currently, like 2001, for example. We love the fact that we are a new world region in the old world. Um, I married an American lady. You know, we, we embraced the new world, the old world, there is a certain there's a certain knowledge that comes from experience. And if Burgundy is making the wine they are, they are making now, and if Barolo is making the wine they're making now, the 200 years that it's been in the crafting definitely plays a part there. Now, can you achieve it in less than 200 years with nowadays tool? Probably. But experience still play a big part. I don't, I don't approach winemaking now the same way I did it 15 years ago. How so? I mean, what's changed in your own mind? Every year, you start with a new empty blackboard or empty piece of paper. And that was Emil Peno teaching it. He said to my dad, once you have all the analysis, once you know everything, you just put everything on the table and you taste. And every year is different. So you have to remember what has happened in previous year because that might become helpful in certain situations, but not have a preconceived idea of what you do need to do next. Sometimes you pick... Merlot before Pinot Noir, and sometimes it's the opposite in the vineyard. But in the cellar, you might press one year after four days of maceration, when usually you do four weeks. Uh, and that and that, and training your palate. You know, now I have a good palate for vinifying Domagasac. When I started, I used to import wine in New Zealand and Australia. I was tasting, I was very good at tasting finished wine. But you, when the first time I, I was in the middle of the harvest, tasting through maceration or malolactic fermentation, I felt, ooh, this is bad. You know, I don't like that stuff. And I don't, how is it ever going to make a good wine? And then the magic of wine happened. You know, if you tomorrow, you might be gifted with pottery, but I'm sure first time you go and try to make a pot out of clay, you're probably going to, f- to fail. Once you've done it 100 times, you're probably going to make a magnificent uh, uh, pot. In terms of things that may have changed over your own career, the things that you've looked at that you've said, eh, 
you know, because you have so many ingredients. So if you wanted to steer the ship, you could steer the ship in all kinds of different ways because you have all these pieces that you could use. So if you decided, you know, one day you just wanted to make much less wine, but it was all Dolcetto, you could do that. Yeah. But you haven't. So are there things that you have done? There's not not many cases where you come in and the first generation has already reached Cult status. Right. I would consider that very intimidating yeah. myself. It was intimidating. So I was very humble the first seven years where when I worked side by side with my dad and I tried to learn and taste with him and talk, exchange. But, you know, he was a guy with the, the experience. So I learned from him the same way he learned from Emile Penault. And my challenge was to make sure that on the day that I totally took over, no one of our existing customer could say, wow, this vintage is made by Samuel instead of Amy. I've never heard that. Your dad died last year. My dad last a year ago in May 2016. Because usually when it's when they die that they say, oh, it's not as good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, but in that case, people would be wrong because I had been making on my own the wine since 06 or 07 and with him since 2000. So it's been a very slow and organic transition. Where have I put my imprint? And that's kind of going behind the scenes. I can think of one thing for the red and one thing for the white. Where should we start? Well, I mean, the white, it's probably the RS, right? Yes. The white is more than the RS, is the use of sulfur dioxide. Historically, the approach with sulfur dioxide is you put as much as you can to be covered. So if you don't want your wine to start refermenting when it reached the U.S., for example, after traveling for a month and a half on a boat, at the time there was no refrigerated container, uh, you needed to put a lot of sulfur dioxide because otherwise there was a risk. It has evolved. Uh, it has evolved because now we use refrigerated container. We use refrigerated truck. And in the cellar, it has evolved because we have tools such as better pump, uh, Pump for me is a little tool, but it's amazing the difference between what we used to have a piston pump, a pump that push and pull, push and pull, adding a lot of oxygen to the wine and oxygen combined with SO2. And so when it combined with SO2, with sulfur dioxide, you're still using a full, let's say, glass of SO2, but only a third is actively working. So you need to add more, more and more. Now we have those rotative pumps, much slower, much more peaceful, and they don't let oxygen. So no oxygen means you can add a quarter or a fifth of what you use of SO2. It's fully working, but you're using a fifth or a sixth of what you used to. It didn't happen overnight. It's like tasting new oak barrels or new oak, um, American oak, French oak, Hungarian oak. We don't make a decision, a decision overnight. We try one, two, three, four, five years. And by the time you, you really perceive it, it's, it's been a slow evolution. But we've divided by three the use of sulfur dioxide in the, which was already low, but divided by three in the, in the Domagesac white. The Domagesac white still has a bit of RS and therefore needs a protection. You know, if I, even if I wanted to be at zero, it would be risky or else you, all my customer would have to accept that they, are get, they pretty much have a time bomb in their hand and the wine could start fermenting at any point. When it comes to the red, the red has been... My dad is a, was a, of the old school, the school where you need... To, chew, to have something to chew in a wine. Let me say that again. When you drink a red wine, he wanted to feel it like gripping the mouth. Not just all over the mouth, but gripping it so you really are tight and maybe have to wait longer and even longer. And not just for the fine wine. He, he liked that in the everyday wine. The 999, he liked a grippy wine. And I've met many people of his generation, winemaker, that to them, a real wine was that. And I agree with him. A real wine was that. But to me, a real wine now is a wine, especially a wine like Domagasad that can age 30 years. The true definition of a Grand Cru wine is that, yes, a wine that can age 30 years, but is drinkable and enjoyable, to say the least, early on. So um, my view on Domagasac is we achieve that, that drinkability and that elegance and finesse by shortening slightly the maceration. For my dad, macerating was a way to get that chewiness by extracting as much as he could from the skin and even more than maybe he should or he could. Uh, you, you have the, the wine that is in contact with the skin of, of the grape and the skin is every day releasing 
it's good content. And at some point, the skin and the seeds, because the seeds are also in the tank, are starting to, well, the, the skin is starting to look like a paper thin. It's so thin, it's released everything. When you chew it, it's got nothing in it. Usually when you've reached that point, by that time, you should have already get rid of the skin. Or if you haven't, you're doing it then. My dad will wait maybe a few days or another week just to get that extra tightness. And he got it from the skin, but that he also got it from the seeds. Because one, usually the seeds don't release too much, but by the time the skin has released everything, then the seeds start to release maybe a bit of bitterness, maybe of tightness, structure, sometimes greenness, not so much in Languedoc because it's hot and the seeds are ripe. But they definitely, if you chew a seed, I mean, it's not that pleasant. It can help in some lesser vintage or, or, or softer vintage, it can help. But on a big vintage, it adds even, even more. And over the course of 15 years, I have evolved to maybe cut the maceration by a few days or a week, or sometimes more, sometimes less. It's more a matter of tasting the wine while it's macerating and feeling that once we've reached that stage where we're starting to perceive that tightness is coming, then we empty the tank, we get rid of the skin, we press, and we keep the rest. So it's, it's an evolution towards elegance, finesse, uh, uh, rather than just chewiness and, and tightness. And I say that with respect for what my dad did, because he did it at a time where that was uh, the caliber of wine people wanted. And I, I believe that every generation has its make its own mark. Now, we're not changing the blend, we're not changing the process, uh, we just worked on making Domagasac more elegant in the youth. When I started in 2000, I remember a remark that I got from a sommelier in London who told me, your Master Domagasac wine are the most incredible wine. They are amazing after 10 years, but really before they're undrinkable. <laughs> to me, that wasn't a compliment. Um, even if he meant it as a compliment, I wanted the wine to be amazing also before. And so uh, um, still retaining tannin, but there are two kinds of tannin. There are the silky tannin that are still will help the wine to age, and you have the rough, slightly rougher one. Uh, they are both of the same families, just one that grew rougher uh, and one that has been made to be more round or silky. Did your dad tend to break berries, and do you do that less as they come in? No, we, we've always, uh, through our distimer, you know, the berries are broken. We've always used uh, 80% of the berries being broken. That, that I wouldn't say I've changed. Now we're looking into a new distimer and the one we have, uh, we've used for 20 years. It's not the same one, but we've used the same machine. The one we're looking now at, it, and that's the biggest if, could change dramatically because we're looking for a totally different brand, totally different system of distimming. That could change. And that's probably where it's not money that is putting me back. It's not the space or whatever. It's just the fact that it could totally change the way we break down the grapes. So we're going to try it for two or three years. And if it works, we will adopt it for 100% of the vineyard. And you changed the cooperage too, right? Uh, we changed cooper and we changed press. We had a Vaslin horizontal press, which I'd lived there for 25 years. My dad, at the time I tried one year, a pneumatic press, didn't like it, sent it back. Uh, we tried a pneumatic press, that's, that, that was 20 years ago. So obviously it was at the very beginning. We tried a pneumatic press and uh, the one we chose, smaller content, uh, I would say I've improved the quality of our work, hopefully the, the quality of the wine, but quality of the work, meaning how we treat the wine by at least a 10 to 20%. I was, not, I was hoping for 4%, I would say 10 to 20%. Uh, and then the Cooper, uh, we used to have a very well-known historical Cooper um, that, we had great relationship with, whether it is me as second generation that was not able to maintain that relationship or, or them, I don't know. I, w I would say that the first reason why we changed Cooper is not so much, well, the quality of their barrel, maybe a little bit, but mostly the quality of the relationship we had. When you send an email or phone call and it takes three weeks, four weeks to come back at you, you know, there's a point where you feel neglected. Um, and we met with a number, we try a number of people and then we found one where from a oak point of view and from a relationship point of view, we feel privileged to work together. And if there's something I've learned and I've totally deferred to my dad with that, is that my dad was not afraid to work with people he might not particularly enjoy or he, 
he was a strong character. So he, for him to headbutt with someone was okay. For me, the first condition to work with a new importer or a supplier is a relationship. I want to be able to pick up the phone. And if we have to talk about something maybe a bit tough, you know, pricing increase or, or allocation, I want to be able to have a nice conversation, not to someone who's going to shoot at me or me fearing talking to them or shooting at them. And we have that. And I must say, I attribute the, since my brother and I have now solely at the helm of the estate, the estate has, has grown by um, more than a hundred percent in the last four years or five years. And I attribute that to this approach, this relationship approach, a lot to that, not just the quality of our wine, sure, the marketing, but the quality of our relationship with uh, our supplier and our clients is, they are all friends. So you went to a smaller press? We went to a slightly smaller press. Uh, the Vasna took a very long time and was limited in terms of strength of the press. So at some point, it forced. And by forcing, there was a risk of breaking the seeds and not extracting as much. We can extract more, especially in the white. I'm not talking so much the red. The red, by the time we've macerated for four weeks, there's very little left. But in the white, four days maceration is full of juice. So, and usually it's the best part that's still in the skin. So we can extract a lot more of the juice. I think the 10 to 20% apply more to the white than to the red. The red probably were in the four or 5% increase. The white, amazing. And the pressed juice is so much better than it used to be. So that has been a, a big, would I call it a revolution? Yeah, I guess when you've changed your press, uh, the same press you've had for 25 years, revolution. What's your approach to using the pressed wine in the final blend? So in the white, we use it right away because uh, the, the press is from skin that is four days old. So it's still so much juice that almost 40% of the wine, is, and it's actually the good juice, a lot of flavors, savors, and, uh, and antocyan. In the red, we always vinify separately. It wasn't always a truth, or you could say that you could put that on me as well. For the last five, six years, I've made a decision to systematically we put the press aside. So we vinified the press side by side to the rest of the wine in separate tank. And we only blend them when we consider that it's it's going to add something. It's at least as good or it's going to add something. Out of five vintage, that has happened four times. There's been one vintage where we just kept the press aside and re-fermented with the, the next year. It was actually a perfect um, a fermentation starter. Um, it represented very little in the end. It, it was less than 2% of the next vintage, but it was a, a good base to have. And so... We always now, the approach for the red is press our aside. That doesn't mean they are bad. Actually, quite often they are, they are great. But at first, they have so much, we've extracted so much that they have so much sediment and so much of the heavy stuff that we need the press to sediment. And let's say you have 10 hectoliter tank of press, you're going to lose at least four to five hectoliter. Where uh, in the normal wine, you might lose one hectoliter maximum. So you, you, you have to be ready to let the press rest a lot get rid of all the heavy stuff, and then it, then it goes well in the wine. In most cases, in my experience anyway. And you typically ferment both colors in stainless? We ferment and vinify everything in stainless steel. There's no oak in the Mastodomagasac white. Mastodomagasac red spent 14 to 16 months in oak, burgundy barrel, nothing else, and 10% new oak only. So we keep our barrels seven years. Every seven years, we, we replenish about 10 to 20 barrels and then we keep the rest. So you, you have, even there, you have a lot of complexity. When you taste a seven years old barrel next to a, a new year's barrel, the wine is completely different. But since we do four or five racking during the course of 16 months, everything is constantly blended. What's the typical mallow for the red? Our mallow happen before Christmas, usually October, November because it's still hot enough. Alcoholic fermentation starts at about 13 degrees Celsius. For the mallow, it happens about 22 degrees Celsius. So it has to be warm enough in the cellar to happen. Usually it's warm enough. If it's not warm enough, we help a little bit with um, like a heater. And it happens and that allows us to then put the wine into the barrel, blend everything and put the wine into the barrel. It's usually very quick, like one day you taste, you see some extra fees and the analysis is not showing anything. Two days later, it's done and the analysis shows it's done. So it's not like fermentation where it's a long course. For us, it, it happened in two, three days, maybe a week maximum. And it happens in tank? All in stainless steel tank. Absolutely. It's only after Malo 
that we send the wine into the barrels. And so you did co-ferment with all the grape varieties that aren't cab, and kind of as they come in, you put them into the tank. Absolutely. We picked the 15 or something grape varieties that are not cab, Bernay Sauvignon. We co-ferment them in, usually it represents two or three stainless steel tank with pump over, remontage twice a day. And at the end of fermentation, we usually let a few more days for maceration. We don't go too far on the non-Cabernet grapes because we want those to provide the fruits rather than the, the rest. So could be a couple of weeks, could be a week, rarely more than three weeks as happened, but what we consider short maceration. In the meantime, so when fermentation is over and maceration is over, then we press and we send that wine in another stainless steel tank just to rest and maybe finish its fermentation sometimes. For the rest, for the, the Cabernet Sauvignon, we pick it, same process, fermentations, twice a day pump over, maceration. Once fermentation is finished, while continuing the maceration, we top up the tank with the non-Cabernet grab. So the non-Cabernet is added once fermentation of the Cabernet is finished, but still on the skin, still macerating. That's an interesting way to do it. It is. It enables the whole wine to take structure and strength all together at the same time, as opposed to doing it separately. Yeah, I mean, there is a harmony, even at a young age. Like, if you taste the 15, yeah. it, you know, it's pretty harmonious already. I usually find that from co-ferments. Yeah. Well, it's like, if you're a chef or a cook, you ratatouille. Ratatouille is typically, I don't know if you're familiar with the ratatouille kind of a dish. It's a lot of vegetables together. You don't cook them separately. You cook them all together. You might put the capsicum or the red pepper first and the tomato last, but you still cook them all together because the cooking has the heat as a way to integrate all flavor together. While fermentation is the same concept. It's warming up. The heat is cooking kind of the grapes. And if you put all the ingredients together, you have a better chance to have a harmonious kind of result. You're in a region with hail. And so sometimes that affects the yields. And so sometimes that might mean you, I'm just guessing, don't get any of a certain grape variety because they're in parcels or not co-planted. So from year to year, does what that co-ferment seems like in terms of how deep the color is, what the taste is like, what the mouth feels like, what the aromas are, does that change a lot? Or? We have tracked down um, back to, we've established a technical sheets with the exact percentage of every single grape variety since 78 that goes into the blend. And it doesn't go from one year, 75% Cabernet Sauvignon to the next year, 30%. Can go 65% to 80%, so plus or minus 10%. And the rest, 7% Merlot one year, 4% the other year, maybe 12. The variation is negligible. I have four brothers. If you line us up, at first, we don't look alike. If you look closely, there's a family trait. We've done a vertical tasting of Master Domagasac wine, 20 different vintage. If you taste them separately, they might not look alike. But when you put them in a line, there's different family traits to the Gasac. And it's not the fact that uh, 78 has 100% Cabernet Sauvignon and then 85 has 80%. That's not what making a, what's really marking the wine is the terroir. And by terroir, I mean, obviously the soil microclimate, but also that wonderful Garrigue environment, the scents from that Garrigue, which is a Mediterranean forest, sage, rosemary, lavender, thyme, uh, there can be a spiciness from the south that is tracked back to the Gasak Valley. And what's your approach to lees? So the white, going back to uh, how we make the white, the white, all the grape together, uh, we don't talk about the grape varieties, but about 15 of them are blended together. Four that dominate, Viognier, Chardonnay, Chenin Blanc, Petit Manzin. All together, we right away cool down the tank with water running over the stainless steel tank in order to stop fermentation to happen. And while doing that, it allows us to do skin contact maceration. So the grapes, the juice, and the skin are in the stainless steel tank. As soon as the tank is full, we cool down the tank with water running over it. That maintains the tank, the juice, and the skin under 60 Fahrenheit, which means the fermentation cannot start. The yeast cannot start. By the way, we only use indigenous yeast. Um, the fact that it doesn't start allow us to do skin contact maceration with twice a day full oxygen pump over, like we do for the red. 
And uh, after five or seven days, when we decided it's time to end that and we have got gained enough flavors, but also oxidation, we send it to press and then we send it to fermentation. Fermentation happened on the lees. And after that, some years um, we'll find that the lees have already given everything you know, by the end of fermentation. And in fact, once the lees have given everything, you have a risk of reverses osmosis where the lees are starting to take back. So you don't want to leave your wine on the lees that take back, otherwise you're losing stuff. On other years, the lees are so rich that you could leave them for two months and they, they continue to give. So we, it's all happen, all happen in stainless steel. We just leave it. Typically, we leave it one to four weeks, no more than that. And on the red, what do you do? Once maceration is over, we tend to get rid of the heavy lees and we keep the fine lees that will be going into the barrels for the 14 to 16 months. And each time we do a racking, we get rid of a little bit of the fine lees to hopefully end up uh, by the time we bottle with a, a wine that is cleared of its lees. Did your dad ever use white grapes or white lees in the red wine production? There's always been a, a few, uh, maybe one or two percent, not always, but there's been a number of years where one or two percent of white grapes made its way into the red for various reasons, but overall, the white, we have already so little of white, you know, 4,000 cases distributed in 77 countries, that doesn't leave much. So we try to keep every single berries of white grapes for the white. And you completely destem the white or? For the white, we completely destem. For the red, we completely destem unless it's a year where the stem is so ripe that it can add to the wine. And then you might say we leave three, four, five percent. Again, there are no strict rules there. It's really where the experience plays in, you know, instead of saying, oh, we've done that because we've always done like that. No, it's actually, is this your year where we should leave the stem? Uh, let's go and try it. So you chew a stem and you decide, okay, how, how does it taste? Is it green? Leave it aside. Actually, it's quite dense and maybe Merlot more than, than Nebbiolo and add a full bunch of grapes in it. Because it would be fascinating to me to try a lot of different stems of different classic grape varieties from the world. They all taste differently. Every grape variety, every stem has its own way to lignify, I guess it's a term, but when they turn brown, and some turn brown really at the last minute of ripeness, some start to turn brown two or three weeks before, some like the Petit Manzin hardly turns brown. So it's the vineyard observation is where everything starts. It doesn't start in the cellar. Looking back at the vintages that you've done, are there particular moments, particular years where you really learned something or that you found challenging or maybe super easy, but that were kind of takeaway moments for you? The most stressful time is when fermentation kind of starts slowing down or stopping for the white with you know a bit of residual sugar, but you don't want to wait to stop too early and you have to help. If it goes really over the seven tank, you have to help each tank by maybe taking a little bit of the tank that works the best and adding to the other one and then and then waiting the next day to see if it works. So we had that in uh, 2012 and 2008. And you have no idea why this year. Is it the yeast? Is it uh, the weather? Is, but that's probably the most kind of stressful time. Weather-wise, we have not really suffered from hail, rain, frost. So we, I can't really say... There's been years where we had to deal with exceptional events. The only one was 2002, but 2002, my dad made a decision to start the harvest way earlier than usual, and we avoided 90% of the rain that were torrential that year. You're someone who lived in New Zealand for about seven years, and you have a home in San Francisco, which is obviously near wine country. Have you ever thought about doing a, another project in another country? It's a question that I've been asked a lot, and... The, almost a straight answer is no. Because one of the reasons I came back, and I believe the same reason it was for my brothers, we came back to Domagasak, is if my Domagasak had been an estate in Burgundy or Bordeaux, I would probably have come back as a seventh generation to maintain something, maybe make a few changes, but maintain. We are the second generation. The, you know, they say, they say the first one create, the second one develop, and the third one sell it all. I don't know about the third one, but yes, there's so much more we can do. Even Winemaking-wise, you know, we come from a transition where Master Magasak, in the course of 15 years, was maybe rustic and tough in the, in the youth to ma- now being recognized as super elegant and, uh, and round. Um, 
we are still finding our path. When we reach 50 vintage behind our belt or maybe 100, maybe the fourth or fifth generation will start to think everything has been done. My brother and I still have so much to do. Replanting the vineyard with a vineyard of 45 years, we have to start preparing the future, um, growing our second estate. We are so busy with what we have to do that we haven't yet reached our limits. And because we were the pioneer in a region that is the largest one region of the world, our limits are, there's quite a bit of space before we reach it. If not for the Doma Gassac, but for our second estate, Moulin Gassac, we started with zero cases of Guillaume distributed in the US in 2005. We are nearing 100,000 cases this year with no promotional activity, no big contract, just organic growth. Uh, and we can still do more. Well, you have four brothers and three of them work with you. And that's an unusual degree of family harmony, like in any business, I think. I don't know if I'll say harmony. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. you know. Harmony, when you see us fighting and arguing, it's, you wouldn't call it harmony. But yes, you know, we are, um, well, we've recognized that our unity is our strength. We don't always agree. And that creates sometimes disharmony, but our unity is our strength. And while I'm here talking to you, And next week in London, or, you know, I have a brother who's overlooking what's happening in the vineyard and one that is looking after the French market. And uh, actually the fourth one has recently joined us and he's just moved to Singapore to develop our Asian market. So Master Magasak is, as you can see and feel and hear, is runs in the blood of its owners, the Guibert family. I'm not saying we can't find employees that do a great job, but are there any better people than the, the fourth son that were born on the estate that, you know, the preach the Gassac world around the world. Samuel Gilbert has found strength in his family and opportunity in the Languedoc. Thank you very much for being here today. Merci. Samuel Gilbert of Master Damas Gassac of the Languedoc of France. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose, and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.